Good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good. Okay. So um, my name is Stephen. Those of you who don't know me, I'm an assistant pastor here, and I bring greetings this morning from Nigel and Joe and the rest of the team who are out at the Karis Kids Camp in Uganda. Uh, they were due to go to church this morning at 7 a.m. our time, uh, so they're probably about ready to start right now, knowing what African churches are like, in my experience. And they might be finished sometime before tea time, so... Um, and also, it's, it's a privilege to be with you this morning because my, my day job, if you like, is actually overseeing the kids and the youth work that happens here at the church. Um, so if you hear any thunderous noises during the sermon, it's not the weather and it's not the building collapsing or anything like that. It's the children doing their workshop. They're doing a drumming workshop. Uh, and so if you hear like a, like a roar of thunder, it's just them getting quite excited. In fact, I can hear them just in the background there. So uh, um, my um, privilege to be with you this morning is that I'm not up there, uh, which is great. <laughs> So we're talking today about lost things, and I want just to kick us off. I wonder if you could um, tell me what the biggest thing you've ever lost is. Thinking of an object rather than a person or, uh, or anything like that. So what's the biggest thing in terms of an object? Just shout it out. Go ahead. No one's lost anything. Wow. A wedding ring, the biggest object. Okay, so. Yeah, okay. Anything bigger than a wedding ring? Anyone, any advance on that? A dog. <laughs> You've lost your dog. Uh, Corky, somebody said anything bigger than a dog? Mark? You lost your youngest daughter. Oh, dear me, okay. Anyone got anything they've lost bigger than a person in size? A car, okay. This couple, if we can have the first slide up, guys. This couple went to the hospital one day in Cheltenham. And they lost their car. They lost the car for five days. Now, I've gone to the car park and forgotten where I parked my car. But I haven't forgotten where the car park is. But that's exactly what these guys did. So an elderly couple who forgot where they parked their car have been reunited with the vehicle five days later. Emmanuel Elliott, 81, and partner Hilda Farmer, 79, left it somewhere near Cheltenham General Hospital on Friday but could not remember where. It was found on Tuesday in a car park about 900 metres from the hospital. And it had been ticketed three times by the wardens. <laughs> Mr Elliot said it was marvellous to have the vehicle back. Miss Farmer thought that she had left it on a street within a mile and a half of the hospital with nice houses on one side and greenery on the other. But after it was discovered in St George's Road car park, she said she must have dreamt when she realised that she couldn't find the car. It's been quite a five days, Mr Elliot added. I hope I can remember how to drive. <laughs> what an amazing story. Um, in, in our house, we, we seem to lose stuff daily. I mean, tipping my kid's bedroom upside down trying to find stuff is a constant occurrence for us. Uh, but the most valuable thing that we've ever lost uh, was a, a ring, uh, an engagement ring. Um, not just any ring, my wife's engagement ring that was specially designed by me, specially made and was the single most expensive thing I'd ever bought at the time. I was a teenager, I spent all my student loan on this ring, and the rest of it went on the wedding. And um, Louise lost it a few weeks ago. Uh, we were at New Wine, and if you're not aware of what New Wine is, it's a large Christian camp, 10,000 people on a um, large field, lots of tents, lots of grass, lots of mud. And it was dark, and she came in one night, and I'd, uh, we just kind of put Naomi, our youngest, uh, to sleep in her cocoon of sleeping bag and duvet and, and her earphones and her eye mask so she was completely cut off from all surrounding noise and stimulus to try and get her to sleep and Louise came in and said I've lost my ring 
And your emotions do funny things in times like that, don't they? But I was like, okay, let's find it. That's fine. <laughs> we can manage this. It's just, you know, a huge field and lots of tents and it's dark. And yeah, we're never getting that back. But she took her phone. She got a little torch up. She wandered off down around the site looking for her ring. Meanwhile, I was rising the children and looking underneath them and checking in their hair and uh, looking under all the pockets. Why is there so many pockets and tents these days? Just, just tearing the place apart, trying to find this engagement ring. And I thought, hang on a minute, I bet she hasn't looked in her bag, because you put your hand in your bag and in and out all the time. I opened up her bag, took out all the other junk that women seem to carry in their bags. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be that strong, sorry. But right at the bottom of that bag was this little glint of gold. And there it was, the engagement ring, Right at the bottom, it had fallen off at some point as she was putting something in or out of her bag. Not a needle in a haystack would probably have better odds than losing something at New Wine and finding it quite like that. So we were so relieved. The emotions that you go through when you have something that's so precious to you, whether it's in terms of sentimental value like that was or monetary value like that was as well, then the feelings you get, the emotions are quite strong. And the relief was amazing because it was going to ruin everything if we didn't find that ring. We'd had a wonderful point up to then. But that is what it was like when Jesus told these three stories about things that were lost. The same kind of feelings are stirred up, the same kind of emotions. And so we're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 15. In fact, I shall read it from the screen just to make sure I'm reading the same version as you guys. So now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We're going to read this in parts and pause at different, different places just to, to talk a little. But we've got the audience for Jesus telling these stories. It's uh, made up of two distinct groups. We've got Pharisees and teachers of the law. And on the other side, we've got the people that they're describing as sinners, like tax collectors. Um, Jesus has been preaching for quite a while. He's been traveling around talking. He's gathered a big crowd around him. But he must have picked up on the distinct mutterings going on by the Pharisees about the other people that were there and that Jesus was welcoming. Because Jesus then decides to tell a story, a parable. A parable being a very simple story with a deeper meaning. Now the Pharisees, if you're not aware, are a highly religious, moralistic group of Jewish leaders. And they have, over the years, they've added to Jesus, sorry, they've added to God's commandments with many of their own commandments. With the idea being to make it a higher and higher target to be able to reach God's Um, love to reach God's presence, to be with God forever. And their name Pharisee actually means to be separated from. So they decided that they were going to separate themselves off from everyone else because everyone else was unclean and unholy. And that's why they look at these people like tax collectors who were universally despised because they took uh, profits um, from the money that they took from the Jewish people and gave them to the Romans and they kept a big slice for themselves. So no one really liked the tax collectors. So they're kind of all lumped in together with these sinners we don't really know what their sins were. We haven't had that much description, but we can imagine the kind of things that they got up to. But essentially, as far as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were concerned, these were not good people, and Jesus should not be associating with them. He should not be welcoming them in. As far as they're concerned, they're unclean and unholy. And Jesus tells this story of a lost item. Apologies, this isn't working very well. There we go. So we've got, in, in one side, we've got the tax collectors and the sinners all grouped together. On the other side, we've got the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And in the Pharisees' eyes, the tax collectors and sinners are out of God's love. 
They, they're out of the inner circle, if you like. They're not good enough. They're unclean. We're separated from them because we are God's chosen people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're the two groups that we've got. So Jesus decides to tell this story. He tells them a parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need to repent. Now the original audience would have been hearing this, and they've been a lot more familiar with the other audience you're hearing this, and that's us today. They would have been hearing it in the context of a shepherd and sheep and be quite familiar with shepherds looking after sheep in the fields. Uh, there was a group of us in Romania a few weeks ago, months ago now, and uh, we quite often as we drove through the countryside, we'd see a flock of cattle or sheep and a shepherd or two shepherds looking after them. But you don't really see that here in the UK. It doesn't really happen, but it would be very familiar to the original audience. And this is exactly the kind of way Jesus taught. He took everyday um, occurrences, everyday objects, everyday occupations like a shepherd looking after his sheep. And he used them to explain in parables, which are simple stories with deeper meanings, kingdom values and aspects of the nature of God through these stories. We have a shepherd, someone, and he's lost something. So I've got a little chart. He goes and he looks for his one missing sheep. Now, one out of a hundred so he's, he's got 99 sheep nice and safe, and he goes and he finds the one that has wandered off. That's wandered astray, it can't find its way back on its own, it's just a sheep. It doesn't know the route, it doesn't know where it is, it doesn't know how it even got there probably. But he goes looking for this one sheep. He isn't satisfied that he's still got 99. 99% isn't good enough as far as that shepherd is concerned. He's looking for perfection, he's looking for that 100%. And what does this tell us about the values God has for us. What tells us that he will go and search for us on an individual level. He looks after each of us as a person rather than as a collective. And he wants to have an intimate relationship with each of us. The, uh, the shepherd went out and he found his sheep and he brought it home and he had a party. And the parallel that Jesus is telling to his original audience and to us is quite simple to understand. There are lost people in the world He wants to search for them, find them, and bring them back home. And home has quite an important meaning here. Home is is like an ideal, if you like. It's, It's where God wants us to be. He wants us to be in his presence. He wants us to be home with him. And that will come through in the other stories as well. But what this really says is that he is relentlessly pursuing each of us. There's a song by um, Corey Ashbury, I think it is, from the Bethel Church. And it's called Reckless Love. Uh, You're probably familiar with it. We've signed it here. In church, but I just want to read some of the lyrics because I think they're fantastic. It talks of the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Just so eloquently describes that relentless pursuit God has for each of us that we matter that much to Him that He wants to come and find us in the same way that that shepherd went looking for its sheep. And Jesus could have stopped there. He could have said, okay, we've, we've told a parable about searching for the lost. Uh, that's telling the Pharisees that these people who are here, that they're calling sinners, are welcome because they're the kind of people God wants to come home to him. They're the kind of people God wants 
in his family that he cares for and that he loves so much. But he goes on to tell a second story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now we've got a different someone. This time the someone's a woman and she's lost a different something. She's lost a coin. One out of ten. One out of ten. Probably worth each coin about a day's wage. A drachma. And uh, she goes and she finds it and she has a party. So we have exactly the same pattern as the first parable. And that's really important. We have repetition in the Bible when someone wants to make a point about something. If you see something happening two or three times in the Bible, particularly three times, it's normally God's way of saying, pay attention, this is important. That's why we get such repetition. Now, Jesus could have stopped after one telling of the story, but he goes on to tell a second one. And the, the contents are slightly different in that we have a little bit more detail about the search itself. We hear about this woman who, just like I was in the tent, she turns on all the lights, she turns everything upside down, she sweeps the floor, and we find out a little bit more about how much this coin is worth to her. It's got a value to her. And what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about God and his kingdom? What tells us that he really values us, that we're really worth lots to him. Yet sometimes we believe the opposite. We think we're not good enough. Or we haven't done anything to deserve God's love. And we will never be able to be as good as we could be. That's a lie, isn't it? That's just a lie that we're not good enough and that God doesn't value us. Let me uh, try and illustrate it like this. I've got somewhere in my pockets a nice crisp new 10-point note. Straight from the ATM, actually. And uh, it's one of the new plastic ones, so it's nice and, uh, and you know, clean and flat. It's only been folded once. And uh, what's it worth? 10 pounds. 10 pounds. If I offer it to you freely, I'm not going to. If I offer it to you freely, would you like it? Yes. Why? Because it's worth 10 pounds. Okay. What if I crunched it up? Someone just went, oh. What if I kind of, you know, stood on the floor and kind of stood on it with my stinky shoe? What if I did even something worse and went outside and, you know, rubbed it in the muck or spat on it? Would you still want it? Why would you still want it? Because it's still worth 10 pounds. The value is the same despite the mess it might be in. And it's exactly the same with us and the way God looks at us. We're worth exactly the same to him, no matter how much of a mess we might have made of our lives in the past or in the present or in the future. We will always be worth exactly the same to God as we do now and as we will in the future. We will never, ever be able to get rid of all the muck on our lives unless we repent and let God deal with it instead. But the thing is, it doesn't really matter. We are all good enough for God, he doesn't exclude anyone on whether or not they're valuable enough or not valuable or not worth anything. And yet we believe this lie that we're all not good enough for God's love or that if we mess our lives up, then God doesn't want anything to do with us. doesn't matter how messy we get, we're still worth the same. So Jesus has told two parables and they've followed the same pattern, haven't they? Someone has lost something, they've searched for it, they've found it, and they've brought it home or they've had a party in their home where they've invited all their friends. And it's a great parallel to how God loves us. He searches for us. He looks for us. He wants to bring us home to him. It's raining on me. 
That was good. Someone should tell Kevin there's a leak in the roof. Up there. <laughs> we'll move this way. So Jesus has told these few parables. He's, he's brought these, um, this pattern together. You're all looking at the roof now, aren't you? <laughs> Focus this way. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. We've got, we've got this pattern established. And Jesus could have, again, he could have just stopped there. But he goes on to tell a third story. But this one actually has some differences. So again, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I'm just going to pause there because that in itself is strange because the estate isn't normally divided amongst the sons. They don't get their inheritance until the father dies. So what the younger son is actually saying is essentially, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have all my stuff that you're going to give me when you die? And that's not a good way to start things off. But even more surprising is the father agrees and he gives him what he's asked for. He divided his property between them. Now, the way it was divided was that the eldest son would get two-thirds. He'd get a double portion. And the youngest son would get his one-third. So he asked for his one-third. And then he goes off and into the, into the different, distant country. and He spends it. So not long after that, the younger son got together all that he'd had. He set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in white living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So... We're hit with a double whammy of problems. He's spent all his money lavishly. We don't know how, but we can imagine. And he's got nothing left. And then there is a famine. And he's really desperate at this stage. He's so desperate that, as we'll read a bit later on, he ends up um, feeding pigs. Now, imagine that you're the Pharisees hearing this story. Um, Here is this man who's done something wrong. And he's ended up having a job needing to feed somebody else's pigs in this foreign land. Now, a couple of things the Pharisees don't like as foreigners. Pigs. Unclean things. And the Pharisees are probably hearing this story about this young man who's done something wrong, and they're thinking, great, he's getting what he deserves. This is exactly what should have happened to him. He ends up in a mess that he's made himself. They're probably thinking, fantastic, this Jesus guy, I quite like what he's talking about. But then Jesus goes on. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's so low in status now that he's lower in status than a pig, an unclean animal in the eyes of a Jew. He's not even allowed to eat their food, and that's how desperate he is. He's not even allowed to eat the food the pigs were given. They are now more important than he is. And then he comes to this point of realization. He comes to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's Hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. What's quite interesting here is the role of the father. And we see the father in this next bit of the story is waiting for his son. He's waiting for his son to return quite expectantly. He believes his son will come back to him. And he's watching from a long way off as he sees his son approaching. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
And what we have here is the process of the son realizing that he's messed up in his life because he's wandered so far in the wrong direction that he's no longer anywhere near home. And he realizes that he's desperate. He's got no other options. But yet, if he went home, he could come up with an excuse to his dad and maybe his dad would take pity on him. And if he wanders home, he can have his basic needs met. And he rehearses this speech. I love the way we get the rehearsal of the speech. But actually, when he gets home, the dad cuts him off kind of mid-sentence, doesn't he? And he does something really amazing. What he's doing is reinstating his son into the family. Now, I know that uh, Trevor Galpin preached on this back in, I think it was the springtime, so I won't go into too much detail, but the whole idea of putting the ring, the robe, and the sandals on the son was a formal way of adopting him. It was like reinstating him back into the family and giving him back everything that he previously had squandered away. So he, no, he's an heir again. He's no longer an orphan of his own choosing. He's become an heir of that father again. I think it's a wonderful picture of restoration that God has for each of us whenever we realize that we've messed up and we repent, we turn ourselves around and come back to him. That he doesn't want to condemn us. He doesn't want to point out all the things we did wrong. He just wants to celebrate the fact that we are back so that he can love on us to its fullness. Now, what is really interesting is that the pattern has been changed. The someone, the something, and the the search, and the find, and the party, they're all changed now. So we've got a father who's lost something. He's lost his son, one out of two. But he doesn't go looking for him. And he doesn't find him, but they do have a party. So why the sudden change in the pattern? So Jesus has spent all this effort and energy establishing this pattern, and now he's told two stories, and then the third one breaks the pattern. And the reason why Jesus does that, and it's quite a common way to teach, actually, is to set something up like that and then change it because it catches your audience unaware. And the Pharisees would have been quite aware of that method of teaching. But what happens is he changes it because he wants to emphasize the fact that no one goes searching for the sun. So my question to you is, whose job was it to go looking for the sun? In the first parable, the shepherd looks for the sheep. The second parable, the woman looks for the coin. We assume that the father should go searching for his son, but yet he doesn't. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is that significant? Why is that important? Dripping on me again. (laughs) Thank you, yeah. The, The reason why the father didn't go searching for the son is because, as the Pharisees would well know, it wasn't his responsibility. Anyone know whose responsibility it was to go looking for the younger son? Sorry? The older brother, yeah. The Pharisees and everyone else would have known that it was the older brother's responsibility to look for his younger brother. He's his brother's keeper, as we hear from the story of Cain and Abel earlier in the Bible. It's not the dad's job, it is the elder brother's role. This is what they would have been expecting to hear, a parable where a son wanders away and the elder son goes and finds him, kicks some sense into him, brings him back to his house where the dad then says, naughty boy. Okay, you can go and spend some time with the servants. That's what the Pharisees would have expected to hear. But instead, they hear this amazing story of grace and restoration instead, where the son is welcomed back in, but the elder brother doesn't do his responsibilities. He doesn't do his job. He doesn't do what he was supposed to do. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never give me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. We'll come back to that one. I think this is amazing. The elder brother has excluded himself from the party. See how that's happened? Instead of fulfilling his role to go and find his younger brother, like everyone would have expected him to do, he stayed at home. He probably thought he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was staying where his dad wanted him to be, looking after the animals and serving in the fields. But that doesn't happen. And instead he starts to become resentful that the party's happening and he can hear what's going on. But he doesn't go in to see for himself. He talks to the servant and he gets the servant to tell him what's happened. And then he gets very cross and angry and resentful. Resentful with his younger brother and cross with his father. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using the two different brothers to represent two different groups. The same two different groups that he was speaking to through the parable. That's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the younger brother representing the lost people, the sinners and the tax collectors. It's a little bit like this. We've got the younger son and the tax collectors all lumped together representing the sinners. We've got the elder brother representing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now remember, the Pharisees thought that they were in and that the younger son, the sinners, were out. They thought that was the established pattern. We're God's people, we're separated. We're doing exactly what God wants us to do by following all of his laws to the letter as best as we can and we're excluding everyone else. And these other people over here, these sinners, these people who don't do the best they can do, They don't follow the laws that we've provided as well as the laws that God provided. They are very much out of God's inner circle. God doesn't want anything to do with them. But yet Jesus tells this parable where the younger son is invited back in and the party is in his honor. And yet the elder brother is the one who's excluded himself. He's out in the field and he's not joining in the celebration. You see, the difference that has happened is that the younger son is now in and the elder brother is out. I wonder if we rewind back to the start of this talk and I explained about the two different audiences, about the Pharisees and about the sinners and about the in crowd and the out crowd. Which one would you put yourself in? So I think most of us would identify either with people who are sinful and therefore we've got a low view of ourselves or we've identified with the Pharisees because we're God's chosen people. And it's quite an, an easy trap to fall into that we can end up having an elder brother way of thinking, even as Christians here in 2018. What's happened is the elder brother represents the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And Jesus is saying, you guys are no longer in. You guys aren't in because you failed in your responsibilities to look out for those that you were responsible for. And that was those who were lost. And this shows us an amazing insight into the heart of God. God's heart is for those who are not here. God's heart is for the lost. There was some research done recently um, by Scripture Union about um, children and attendance in church. And... Uh, They came up with some figures. They did a UK-wide research and said that uh, 5% of UK children attend church in some way regularly. That means that 95% are out there somewhere else. And that figure is even worse if you look at adults. There are more children in attendance proportionally in the UK than adults in this country. So the the percentage of attendance for for adults in the UK is something like 3 or 4%. So we've got up to 95% out there, and we're here. Missional heart of God is the missional challenge he's given us as well, is to go to those who need him most. And yes, we're doing amazing stuff like storehouse and the food bank and all the other things we do to serve those who are out there. And we're each doing individual things as scattered servants. Wherever God has placed us, in our workplaces, 
in our neighborhoods. That's where he's called us to be, and he's pleased with what we're doing. But there's so much more that can happen. And God is saying, don't miss out on the fact that you are responsible for those who are not part of this church. Um, there's a, a phrase, I'll see if I can remember this. Um, I can't remember who said it, but I read it at one point and it stuck with me, but now I've lost it at the wrong time. Uh, the church is the only organization created for the purpose of reaching those who are not in it. Something like that. Do you know what it is, Mark? That's the one, okay? The church is the only organization ever created for the benefit of those who are not in it, of its non-members. Thank you. I think that's great. I think that's a great attitude and way of looking at us as church. We're created for the benefit of those who are not yet part of this church. And our calling is to go to them. Just like the elder brother was supposed to look after his younger brother. Just like the Pharisees were responsible for telling the love of God to the sinful people that they came across. And so that's the message I want to leave us with today. And uh, the final thing is this, is that, oh, we've lost the slide. Pete, can we go back to, um, I think it's verse, I'll read it to you. If Pete can find it, that's great. If not, I'll read it to you. Verse 31, and we end on a kind of a positive, potentially positive note for this elder brother. The father goes out to the son. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then the parable ends. We never find out if the elder brother goes into the party. We never find out what happens to him. It's very open-ended. It's kind of one of those stories, I wish I knew what happened next. But what I think is really significant is that the father still isn't happy with his older son excluding himself from the party. He goes to him. He searches him. He finds him with the intent of bringing him home. And that's how much our Father God loves us. He loves us so much that he will seek us out despite our sinfulness, despite our inability to do what he's called us to do sometimes, that he will seek us out and bring us back to him. We're going to watch a video if the technology is working for us. And uh, it's called The Father's Love Letter. It's a wonderful um, kind of amalgamation of different verses from the Bible put to music and they've just released a new version for their 20th anniversary which makes me feel really old um, and uh, it's just come out and uh, it's about five six minutes long so just settle in and uh, you can close your eyes you can uh, just listen to this or you can watch the images and, the, and read the Bible verses on the screen so we're going to watch that now and then we're going to spend some time in prayer the words you are about to experience are true They will change your life if you let them. For they come from the very heart of God. He loves you. And He is the Father you have been looking for all your life. This is His love letter to you. My child, You may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. 
for you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You were not a mistake. For all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope, because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. For it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine. For I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are broken hearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your father, and I love you even as I love my son Jesus. For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you, and to tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me and nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father, and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I am waiting for you. Love, your dad. Almighty God.
you're able to, would you like to stand? I'll invite Laura and the band to come and join me. And we're going to pray uh, for a couple of things. But before we do that, let's just, uh, let's just ready ourselves to hear what God wants to say to us. So you might want to hold your hands out. It's just a, a sign to welcome the Holy Spirit here. So Father, we welcome you this morning in this place. We, we value your presence. As we sign earlier, Lord, we, we long to be in your presence, to be home with you. Help us, Father, to feel that you're near, that you're close. Come, Holy Spirit, and dwell in this place and in each of us. Fill us up, Lord, with your love and your care. Show us how much we are worth to you, how much you value each of us. There's a couple of groups that we can pray for this morning. I think particularly people who just don't feel worthy, just have maybe a sense of doubt about themselves, about being good enough. And as I said earlier, that's a line. We want to break that this morning, so I want to pray for that. But also I think there's um, people, who, people who feel lost from God or far from God. And uh, it would be great if we could pray for both of those groups this morning. So we'll, we'll do it slightly differently in that um, if, if you feel you're in one of those places, if you're feeling that you're far from God or you have a sense of loss uh, or feeling distant or, on the other hand, if you're feeling that... Um, sense of self-worth is low then why don't you just pop a hand in the air and those around you will pray for you no need to come up to the front great the band will just uh, play over us as we pray so if that's you why don't you just put a hands up we've got five ten minutes before the kids need to be collected there's no rush here and we've got time for god to move and to do what he wants to do so if you want some prayer if you want people to gather around you just indicate that to your neighbor or just put your hands up until someone comes and prays with you.